and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Good morning, Bent Tree Church. Merry Christmas. It's good to have you guys here as we get our Bibles out. We're going to be in John chapter 6 if you want to go ahead and be turning to that. My name is Paul Trimble. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, man, ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. I love this time of year. I love to wear red with my long beard and go to the store. I went to Home Depot yesterday uh, because that's my favorite store. And uh, I got asked uh, like three different times uh, to say if they could, I could help them find something because of my red sweatshirt that I had on uh, with that. So it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out, get something to, to write with as we take notes, uh, as we continue through this series that we've titled, So That You May Believe. Uh, you, you can follow along in your Bible app if you want to. We've got all those uh, notes and the scriptures in the Bible app there. You just go under events and look for Bent Tree Church in today's day. Uh, or you can do it the old-fashioned way. And you can simply use paper. I know that's crazy sounding, but can I just give you a little suggestion though? I know several people here in Betri do this. Uh, many of these are D3 leaders that do it. But what they do is they write down the points they see on the screen. That's, that's the basic thing. But then they think, if I were going to actually stand up here and teach this, they try to take notes like that. They ask questions of themselves along the way. They think through what the text is saying. And more, most importantly, they compare what I say to the text of Scripture to see if it's true. Now, if you do that, two things will happen right away. One is... Well, time will pass very quickly. Uh, 15 minutes will seem like 10 minutes, but second, and some of you thought, well, that's a good idea. But second, and more importantly, you'll begin to grow spiritually at a different rate. Taking notes in the service, leaning into a sermon and going, what is this preacher saying? What is God saying to me? It's like miracle growth. Do you know what that stuff is? Like you, you put it on, uh, you know, your house plants or your garden and it's like super fertilizer stuff really, really takes off. This will work in your life. But just a warning, if you do start to lean in uh, at a deeper level, what you're going to do is you're going to see growth in your life like never before. Well, gee, just a reminder, Christmas services are this Coming Saturday, 2, 3.30, 5 p.m. And please do two big favors for us. If you're a Bent Tree member, register for which service you're going to. Uh, and second, invite people like crazy. Uh, this is the time of year people, they want to come to church, even if they're not a Christian. It's like a, a Christian thing to do, and we're going to give them the gospel. Amen? We're going to lay this out for them. Well, before we go any further, let's go ahead and just... Go to God in prayer. Would you bow your heads? Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. God, we take, take your word seriously. And so, God, I, I pray that you be with me as I preach, that I just disappear behind the text and that your Holy Spirit um, would make alive the truths in this passage. 
God, I pray for those coming today that um, their mind is tied up somewhere else. God, would you help them to let go of that and focus and concentrate? God, just as an act of worship, we have our Bibles out in front of us and we, we want to listen with, with the power of your Spirit speaking to us. So that's what we pray. Be here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're able, go ahead and stand in reverence for God's Word being read aloud uh, in our midst here. This is John 6, verses 10 through 15. Listen as I read to you. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to them Those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Just a warning. This is not our typical kind of sermon today. Uh, I'm going to challenge you a bit. Okay, I'm going to seriously challenge you, your view of life. It may, well, it may upset you a little bit. Or it may upset you a lot. Um, I, I hope it doesn't. Uh, and I know, please know that I love you. Stay with me today. I'm going to take you through some choppy waters. Is that cool? As always, I would love to hear from you, uh, talk to you through anything you're having difficulty about that you're learning. But what's funny is that I in no way intended this sermon to fall on the week before Christmas, but that's where God's got us studying. Now, don't worry, Christmas Eve will be about Christmas. We will be studying that on Christmas Eve. Uh, Pastor Ralph, who preaches for us out in brush these days, uh, when he hears some of the topics that we get to on weeks like this, he says, Brother Paul, you have a backbone like a T-rail uh, for taking on that topic. And and I don't know if that's the case or I'm just kind of hard-headed or maybe it's the case that I'm soft-headed. In any way, here's the message that God has laid on my heart. Is that, is that are you tracking? As we continue to look at this last part of the fourth sign, this fourth miracle uh, in the Gospel of John, we focused on this passage for a few weeks now, and it's delivered so much about who Jesus is, and we'll move on soon, I promise. But don't, don't miss, right at the end here, verses 14 and 15, there's something God has for us, especially for us. 
in this age. To remind us, Jesus turns five barley loaves to fish given by this poor young boy into this enormous feast, feeding 20, 25,000 people till they're all full. And 12 baskets are left over for the 12 disciples to eat. Now remember, no other miracle Jesus would perform would have such an immediate effect on so many people all at once. This story sets up the rest of the chapter. Jesus is claiming to be the bread of life and what that means about following him. But what we don't want to miss is what happens right here at the end of this passage in 14 and 15. When the giant crowd realizes the magnitude of what it took, the power it took Jesus to pull off this miracle, it clicks in their mind. Something clicks. They think, hey, This guy may be the Messiah. He could be the ones that the prophets foretold. And they begin to think, hey, if we could some kind of harness, somehow harness this power, we could throw off Roman occupation. They think maybe we could get out from under the yoke of Roman rule and has kept us poor and needy for so long now. They decide to take Jesus and make him king and do it by force. Now, this is an interesting effect this sign causes. Like, check this out. With this fourth sign of Jesus performing for this crowd, it's so massive in nature, in its sheer size and suddenness and its visibility, it's unlike any other miracle, the first three signs we've studied so far in John. In those first three signs, maybe words spread over time, like he, uh, what, but the effect of the miracle was kind of less in proportion to the size of this one we've been studying. Those other ones were just a few people at a time. Now, don't get me wrong. They were miracles that only God could do, those first three. But this one just affects so many people all at once. Now, here's why I think this is so important with this miracle, really above the other three miracles. When people witness this miracle, or the other three, or any of them, there's one of two effects it seems to have outside the miracle itself. Now see if this makes sense. What I mean is that there is the miracle, but then there is people's response to the miracle when they get that it's a miracle. One effect, one response is the right one. The other is the wrong response. The right effect is that there's an awe of Jesus and that leads people to repenting in a humbleness in the people. Now here, write this down. This is an important point. The right response to the miracles of Jesus. I'll follow Jesus and do what you say to do because I realize you are the son of God. The right response to the miracles of Jesus I'll follow you, Jesus, and do what you say to do because I realize you are the son of God. Now, with this response, there's a surrender of a personal will there. There's a repentance that, that, that takes a humility that says, I've been wrong. I'm sinful. I'm wicked. I want to follow you. That says, Jesus, I'm not God. You are Jesus, and I'll take your plan for my life. 
Now you remember when we looked at Jesus calling Peter to follow him to be a disciple. We looked at a few, looked at that a few months ago. Jesus had just preached to a crowd while standing in Peter's boat. You remember that? Just a few yards offshore. Jesus is preaching. Uh, then when he's done, he turns to Peter and tells Peter, he says, um, and the other future disciples, he says, hey guys, let's go out and let your nets down into the water and fish. Now, they've just fished all night, if you remember, and caught nada, nothing. But they say, well, since it's you, Jesus, that ask, we'll do it. And when they do, when they go out, they pull this massive load of fish in. And though they fished these same waters the previous night and caught nothing, now their boats are starting to sink. There's so many fish. Now, do you remember Peter's response to the miracle? It's not, woohoo, we're rich. We struck it rich. Look at all these fish we can sell here. No, Peter's response. Let's look at it in Luke 5 for just a moment. Verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, this miracle, he fell down at Jesus' knees and saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And also were, were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now look. When Jesus shows his power to these disciples, there's this response of humility, of repentance, of even seeing that they're unworthy to even be with Jesus. And and what is the response? I mean, ultimately. Well, they become followers of Jesus. And other than John, all of them are martyred eventually. They'll leave everything behind. Their jobs behind their way of life, the disciples clearly have this same response to Jesus in feeding the 5,000. But I suspect, like the crowd, they start to think, man, maybe this is the Messiah that could throw off Roman rule. Check this out. There's an effect, another effect to Jesus' demonstration of power. And we see it here in our main text in John 6. The other effect from the miracles and specifically Feeding this giant crowd begins to ignite people's own plans and desires. They begin to see what this kind of power could change the world. Instead of a humbling event, instead of making these people immediately see their own sinfulness like Peter had with catching all the fish and dropping to his nets, saying, get away from me, I'm a wicked man. Most of these people see Jesus' sign of feeding this massive crowd and think, now what could this kind of power do for me and for us? This is the second response, and it's the wrong response. Write this down. The wrong response to the miracles of Jesus I see that Jesus has some great power. I think I know how I can change the world. The wrong response to the miracles of Jesus. I see that Jesus has some great power. I think I know how I can change the world. Do you see the difference between these two? Have you ever noticed this even in your own life? 
In this response, there's no humility. There's no repentance going on. And there's certainly no thought, I will die for this man. I'll be willing to lose my job, my livelihood, for his purposes. So think of these two responses. And take a moment to compare your life, your response, when you see the majesty of Jesus. First response, people see the power of Jesus contained in the church, especially in God's word. God the Holy Spirit draws them to Jesus, the truth of who Jesus is. It humbles them. They realize how sinful they are, how wicked they are, that they need Jesus' atoning blood. They are born again. They repent. They repent. They begin to follow Jesus. That's the result of being born again. They follow him by giving over control of their lives to Jesus. We call those believers Christians. Or you'll understand why we call them Christ followers. They say, whatever it is, Jesus, you want me to do, that's what I want to do, even if I don't want to do it. Especially if I don't want to do it. That's that's awesome, and that's what we should do. That's what the Christian life is about. And certainly, we are imperfect at following Jesus up the discipleship pathway, but it seems at least to me, more often than not, especially we saw in chapter 6 and this verse 14 and 15, there are those that when they see Jesus' ability, when they experience his power, they think, let's use him for our benefit. Now, what's confusing is, is when that happens today, these people will often call themselves Christians and believe themselves to be saved and appear saved. They often attend church and can be very involved in church. But if you watch, you can start to to realize that maybe they're not born again. At least not yet. Because there's no humility and there's no repentance. And probably most obvious, after they've been at church for a while, there's still no spiritual fruit growing from within them. You just don't see any humility. And here's another way to examine yourself here. People in this second response to Jesus' power view him like a genie in a bottle. You know what I mean? Some people will even view prayer as a kind of like rubbing the old lamp and and like Jesus is their personal genie at their beck and call for whatever their wish is. Now, this is where we have to examine our own lives as believers because this kind of preaching, that kind of teaching is so easy to kind of let slip into the church today. This is uniquely an American style of gospel. It has leaked into my life many times in my growth. We can start looking at Jesus as kind of like a a cosmic butler, and it can be so subtle Like some kind of vending machine, if you just pull the right levers and pray and say, well, then Jesus goes, hey, if that's what you want, and that nothing should bad ever happen to me, we let that slip in. There's so many that have made this false doctrine that any suffering by a Christian is something that can simply be remedied by rubbing the lamp and praying to God, and God shows up as the genie or the butler and says, poof, what do you want? Poof, what do you want? And worse, because this is not how the Christian life works. 
This kind of false teaching also says, well, if you're not healthy, wealthy, and wise, it's certainly not God's fault. You must be doing something wrong. You must not have enough faith. Now, that's just totally wrong. It's a false gospel. It's the kind of false teaching that says to a sister or brother in Christ who gets cancer that says, well, you must have been living in sin. That's just jacked up, by the way. That's wrong. It's sinful. This is, in large part, what the prosperity gospel is based on. If you're new to the prosperity gospel, you need to understand it's a false gospel, a false version of the gospel that sounds right on the surface, and they even use much of the same language of orthodox Christianity, but they don't mean the same thing using the same words. The false prosperity gospel began to take root in the United States 50 to 100 years ago in the Pentecostal movement. I grew up in that stuff, so I know about it. But it's spread to many parts of the world and it has ruined countless lives in discipleship. False discipleship. Now we're not going to go there right now. We have to address, we have addressed this in the past and we will again uh, as it, because it's such a part of the Christian life right now. The truth is Christians will suffer if we follow Jesus. It's part, and notice no one said amen on that. It's part of the gig. It's how the refining process works if you follow Jesus. All through the New Testament, we hear the words of Jesus echoed when he says this in John 16, 33. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He's saying, look, it's going to be tough. Again, we don't have much time to go here, but just remember this first. Jesus has won. Amen? But in this life, we will suffer. And yet, the great thing is that even in our suffering, God is in control, using that suffering to grow us into this creation he designed us to be. That's the purpose of the suffering or others around us. Even bigger, God is using our suffering for his glory so the world sees how great Jesus is. And certainly it's not, uh, not all, it's not all suffering, is it? This Christian life of following Jesus, there is real joy. There's fruit being produced in our lives. We'll look forward to the suffering when it ceases, when we're finally at home with Jesus in heaven and we won't suffer anymore. Now, I don't want to get away from our text in John 6, but there's something here right at verse 14 and 15 I want to point out. And this is the part that may upset you. It's a result of how both Christians and non-Christians respond to Jesus. John 6, verse 14 and 15, look at it with me again. When the people saw this sign, talking about the feeding, that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the second kind of effect that we just talked about to Jesus' power brings out in people. Not a repentance and following of Jesus, but a thinking How can I use this power of God? This can happen to Christians. 
can happen to redeemed people, non-Christians. It's happened to me too. Like if we can get Jesus to endorse our ideas, our plans, and get behind them, then we can get what we want. Sometimes this is really well-meaning. But sometimes in our plans and Jesus' plans, uh, it doesn't work. They don't go together, our plans and Jesus. I know that's a surprise to you. And then sometimes people don't believe Jesus at all, but they see the power of the church and the power of the movement, and they've got an agenda for the church, and they go, hey, I'm going to get the church to do this. We see this in politics all the time, don't we? Both major parties and even the independent parties, Republicans and Democrats, and even weird little ideologies, they do this, people trying to use Jesus and his church as an as an endorsement to get people to join their political movement. Now, I'm not saying because you're a Democrat or Republican, you're automatically involved what I'm about to tell you. But check this out. See if you recognize what I'm about to describe in your own life or in the world. On the Republican side, we've seen some people try to... uh, Get people, other people, to support a Christian nationalism. Like the cross of Christ is somehow draped with an American flag. You saw it at work in the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. People literally carrying crosses and and pictures of the Bible and Jesus' name saying Jesus is endorsing this riot right now. Now you... You have to always ask when, what people mean when they say Christian nationalism. That's a loaded term for sure. Here's what I mean by it when I say it. Christian nationalism identifies national identity and our identity in Christ and our service to God as the same thing. Now make sure you understand what I'm saying. Christian nationalism identifies national identity and our identity in Christ, and our service to God as the same thing. This is really, really bad. Now hear me out, because I know some of you are like going, oh, Paul, this is bad that you even brought this up. Now this can happen in any nation, but since this is where we live, let's talk about our nation. Stay with me, even if you don't agree, especially if you don't agree. I know I'm stepping uh, on toes. If I'm not stepping on your toes right now, uh, just wait. I'll get there. Uh, I've got it lined up here. Christian nationalism is bad, is damaging because it conflates the purpose and function of our country with faith in Jesus Christ. And this is such an easy fountain to drink from. But although it sounds good, and it might be even good things, like restoring American values and making America a Christian nation once again, it's poison in the end, and I promise you. Because it sounds so close to biblical Christianity, but it's not. Because it is placing an unbiblical movement that uses Jesus, uses his church, and the symbols of the cross to push its own political agenda. Jesus simply becomes a sales trick. It's not faith alone in Christ alone. It's Jesus can save you if you can enough. 
Now this is dangerous ground to be on because if you add Jesus plus something else, anything else to be saved, to live for, you are in trouble because it's a false gospel. It's no different than those Jewish folks in John 6 going, we're going to make Jesus king by force and we're doing it now. And Jesus basically goes, no, you're not. And he disappears, walks right through them. And they're going like, where did he go? He doesn't say that. He just slips away. But politically thinking, this plan of the Jews wasn't necessarily a bad idea. I mean, the Romans were awful overlords. Wouldn't Jesus want his people to be free of their overlords? But what was wrong with their idea? It wasn't Jesus' plan. They were, but they were going to make it his plan if he liked it or not, weren't they? Now, on the other side of the political aisle, on the democratic side, we've seen a big push that if you call yourself a Christian, you have to support totally unbiblical positions like accepting and celebrating homosexuality, sex outside of marriage, critical theory, intersectionality, critical gender theory, and race theory. And on the surface, their claims sound good. Stuff like, let's get rid of racism and poverty. Let's accept everyone the way God made them. That that sounds good. There's no such thing, uh, they say, as sin, though. And we must tolerate every action and every idea. Otherwise, it's sin. Do you see the problem with that thought process, by the way? There's no sin unless you don't accept it. The problem is that the proposition itself fails. It falls. It's a fallacy because do you tolerate someone who doesn't tolerate someone else? By the way, their mind explodes when you ask that. Just like Christian nationalism, it fails because it tries to add Jesus to their political agenda. Listen, all that comes from what is all that comes from what on the surface sounds so good, sounds Christian, but it's not. It's incredibly evil at its core. Core. All of it goes against what the Bible actually teaches. For instance, saying that there is no such thing as sin is simply calling Jesus a liar. I'll tell you why that critical theory stuff is so dangerous. I've read, I've studied about this a ton. Now, some of this is is my opinion, but listen, give me grace, but I've studied this for years. I've read hundreds of books on this stuff. I'm not exaggerating. Many of its proponents of critical theory who call themselves Christians say this comes right out of Scripture, but it clearly does not. It comes right out of the godless philosophies of guys that were endorsing some seriously messed up styles of lifestyles and sin. Guys like Immanuel Kant, George Wilhelm Frederick Hegel, Karl Marx, and many others that were atheists. And their goal, their stated goal, was to destroy Christianity. 
In fact, the common preaching that comes out of progressive churches today is a false gospel that says Jesus' death was not, uh, his, his blood didn't pay for sin and there's no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as evil. And they'll say awful things like there's no such thing as sin, but then they'll say that Jesus' death was really about trying to bring social change and people got confused and killed him for it. Baloney. Oh, Jesus was only an example and they killed him because he was trying to get everybody to do something uh, of what we're selling today from, from the guys that brought you socialism and Marxism and yet the progressive church in America proclaims socialism as the real Christianity. They say crazy things like Jesus was the first socialist. Progressive churches have even begun to fly flags outside of their buildings about this stuff. They are virtue signaling that Jesus wasn't a true Messiah, but, but we'll use his name. They have wrapped themselves in this deadly political agenda and have put a thinly veiled Christianity over it. And they have put, uh, they hope you don't look to scripture to find out it's false. They hope you don't look to history either to find out socialism is deadly. Socialism, which is really just Marxism and the slippery slope that leads to communism. Hang with me. I know I'm taking some of you off, but listen to me. If you haven't studied history, you might not realize that that stuff is what brought out the massive scale of death in the 20th century. I mean, from 1899 to 1999, Conservative estimates, 100 million dead because of socialism. 150 million dead is probably more accurate. Here's what you need to know. Socialism has its roots firmly planted in Marxism. And of course, they're not calling it Marxism, are they? The new name is critical theory. And democratic socialism. Here's the short history of oh, the overall movement we're seeing today in politics and in the progressive church. Hang with me. By the way, we could go for hours on this, but let me just, just enlighten you. Here's where it began. The Frankfurt School in Germany between World War I and World War II moves to the United States, begins to take root. The thought was... That the first world war and all the problems of that of the world faced was because of its institutions. And if the institutions could be controlled or changed or destroyed, they would find society would be made better. We could reinvent a new system. Those institutions they sought to, sought to change would obviously be government, but you can't start with government. So they made a plan to take over institutions of life, starting with schools, churches, local governments, unions, all of that. And worst, at the core, they said you can't take over that until you take over the family. Because if you could replace a family, if you can control the family, you can control the church, you can control the schools, nothing would be left then to control, to stop them from controlling countries. And we'll talk more about this in the future because this is deep stuff and this is real. But both socialism and Marxism, look, totally unbiblical, even though they claim Jesus was a Marxist. Critical theory is not based on right and wrong or simply uh, 
But it is simply designed to destroy family and the most basic unit of society and any other organization that stands in the way. It's why progressive church says what it says because it's controlled by this ideology. Can I just tell you there are some folks that espouse critical race theory and even socialism and they don't necessarily have those goals. Maybe you do. Maybe you espouse this, but you don't have those goals like they do. I'm not trying to demonize those people, but simply pointing out that they are dealing with some serious, deadly, dangerous stuff. There's a lot of people, a lot of Christians who look at CRT, they look at intersectionality as a kind of lens to view life and the world and the injustices and to correct those injustices. On the surface, that is noble, and it sounds like something that Christians should be involved in, right? Yes. But what they don't realize is that CRT and intersectionality not only don't solve racism and injustice in the world, listen listen to me, it actually expands racism and injustice. Probably the worst thing that critical theory does is that it actually prevents us as Christians from addressing the real problems of injustice and racism. It takes our focus, especially Christians' focus, off standing against real racism when we see it. Now, I could could and should write a book on this. Maybe someday I will. But you need to know what socialism and this kind of thought is so evil, even though it claims Jesus' endorsement. You go, Paul, why are you talking about this? Because they have brought it into the church. Socialism is simply sinful because it takes money by the force of a gun and it gives it to someone else. That's called stealing. Fundamentally, it breaks one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. And no, it's not the same thing as taxes that benefit everyone. Now, hear me. We could go on and on about the ditches. You can go into adding Jesus plus your political agenda. And we'll talk about that more in the future of how we live our Christian life. But let me ask a question. From what I just said, does that mean Christians then should not be involved in public life, society, or politics? Should we just talk about the Bible alone and not offer our opinions? Should Christians even vote or run for office? The answer is we should be involved in our world, living as uh, in what Jesus called being salt and light to a dark world. We are called to love Jesus and serve our world by being salt and light. You, can, uh, you can't affect the world if you're not involved in it. Write this down. This is huge. We are called to love and serve our world by being salt and light. You can't affect the world if you're not involved in it. Now the big message of scripture, here I'll leave it up a minute. The big message of scripture all through the New Testament is that Christians should be in the world but not of it. Stand against what is wrong. Stand for what is right. Salt that gives flavor and preserves things that are going bad. Keep society from becoming totally godless and self-centered. And then offering light. You can't do either of these things if you are not engaged in the world. 
That's why we don't hide just in our church buildings. We get out in the world where we live. We engage it like Jesus did. The apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now watch this. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go outside the world. I think that's funny. We don't hide from the sexually immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. We show them Jesus and how we live and love. And talk about charity. Look, charity comes from the church originally. The original institutions of our society. Schools, hospitals, universities, adoption come from the church. All those institutions came originally from believers living their lives out. Now, folks, although slavery practiced in the American South by many Christians is an awful stain on those churches' history and guilt, but the truth also is that the abolitionist movement that freed the slaves came out of the Protestant Christian churches of this country that were engaging the wrongs they saw around them. And even democracy, even representative government, you get Reformation and the Protestant movement. We should talk about that sometime. So yes, we should love and live by Scripture and become as much like Jesus as we can. We should grow into fully mature Christ followers. The first response we talked about at the beginning of our time for those that really submit to Jesus as Savior and Lord and follow Him, we have to engage our world no matter where we live. And this means that we do vote. It means that we research our choices, issues, and people that are on the ballot. It means that we stand for what the Bible says we stand on. We get involved in the community at every level, and we bring the light of Jesus from kids' schools to their soccer teams to the city council. It means... To run for office as God has given you that desire and ability. Listen, we need Christians to run for office at the local school board level, the city level, the county, the state, and certainly our country. We need them serving on local commissions, on boards, on homeowners associations. Some of you just got a little throw up in the back of your mouth when I said that. And, and the push... You'll hear when I say something like this is, well, you can't legislate morality, Paul, so we shouldn't even try. And and, and I get what they're saying. Law doesn't change hearts. Only Jesus does by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. Amen? But what I also reply when people say, as you say, you can't legislate morality. And I say, what do you think laws are? Laws are simply an agreed-upon set of morals. Now, some will reply to me, that's, that's what, I, what I'm doing right now is Christian nationalism. They'll go, Paul, you're just a, you're just a Christian nationalist. You're, you're just storming the Capitol and trying to overthrow the government. But don't let that label scare you away from being involved in society. It's not Christian nationalism. We already defined that. 
No, this is being salt and light. This is being a follower of Jesus. This is fighting evil where we live. By the way, when someone says something like, well, the Constitution, it prohibits, I've heard this recently this week, it prohibits Christians from living out their faith in the public sector in politics. And they use the phrase, the separation of church and state. Have you heard that? seemingly to imply that the Constitution tells us that religion cannot play a role somehow since we are Christians, but that all other views are valid as long as they are not Christian morals. Just know two things here. That phrase, the separation of church and state, is a real thing, but it does, A, not appear in the Constitution anywhere, it comes from the letters of Thomas Jefferson to the other people that were signers, And B, the founding fathers meant the statement as a way to express that government cannot dictate to the church or to Christians what their doctrine and beliefs are. And listen to me, this is going to hurt some of your feelings if we can meet or not. What's kind of funny is when people say that Christians shouldn't be allowed by law to live as Christians in society and that they must follow only secular rules, they are the ones that are actually breaking that idea of separation of church and state. Now listen to me, listen close. We have to be very careful here not to make Jesus into some political Messiah. And it's not just in the United States. I know that for those of you listening online, There are people in other countries, really, that are listening. What's cool is we are Christians, and wherever we live, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. And we should live out our faith, whatever nation we're in, as much as we are able. I've prayed with other Christians in parts of the world that if they were found with me, they would be have been arrested. I don't even say the names of the cities or the countries. I have felt a kinship with believers, the continents of Africa, Asia, Europe, all over the world, trying to live their life in effect to society that they live. Now, don't confuse salvation in Christ alone with being an American or any other ethnicity or nation. Or that you have to vote a certain way before you can be saved. That's not what I'm saying. What we are saying is that as believers in Christ Jesus, we need to engage this world wherever we live with the results of following Jesus. But at the same time, having said that, it doesn't mean that real Christians don't vote or even run for office or stand for true biblical principles found in Scripture. We do. We stand for those. We fight for the unborn babies in mother's wombs. That's a biblical doctrine. That's the sanctity of life. We stand against child labor that would use children to work in factories. It was the church that got that passed. We stand against those who would take advantage of the poor. We stand for biblical marriage of one man and one woman. We stand against those that say marriage should be between more than two people, one man and one woman, that it should be groups of people. And you go, Paul, that's ridiculous. It's already coming on ballots in several states. 
We stand for the protection of children against those that would try, look, look, to convince them that the gender that God made them was not right. We stand against those that would mutilate a child's body because they have convinced that child of their political belief system. We stand for and we stand with those that have faced injustice in the world. We stand against racism everywhere we see it. We stand with people that face homelessness and food insecurity and poverty. We stand against people that would say suicide is sometimes a good option if you have certain diseases because you are not worth caring for anymore. We, we love and we serve and we take care of special needs, children and adults, and not those who say we should have aborted them or even now we should kill them because they're not worth saving. We stand with and protect the orphan and the widow. And you, Bentry, you put your money where your mouth is. You do. Remember, 8% of our budget leaves this place to take care of the hurting world, both locally here, the homeless, through the House of Neighborly Service. Many of you serve in that. In church planning, overseas missions, do you realize your giving is part of the, some of the biggest worldwide disaster relief on the planet? You're involved in that. We do stand for what is right. We have a responsibility as a church, as individuals, to speak up when we see evil. We have a responsibility to act. But we mustn't do what we see in John 6 and try to make Jesus endorse what we want him to do. Instead, instead, we have to do what he wants us to do and we find that only in Scripture alone. Now, what we think, not in what the Bible, we think the Bible says, but we have to say what it actually says. And therefore, we must know it. What I'm saying is that unlike this crowd that wanted to make Jesus their king and take him by force to Jerusalem to carry out their will, we must make sure that we're carrying out God's will and not our own driven by our own corrupt nature. The Jewish crowd wanted to make Jesus king by force. You can see where they were going off, can't you? But they thought they were right. Maybe I've hurt your feelings today. That's not my goal. Maybe I've made you angry. My goal is to not make you into political zealots. I don't want that. But the goal is to get you to begin to live like Jesus as a Christ follower in the world where you live. Engage it to be salt and light to a dying world that desperately needs you. To stand for what is right. Christians that will engage the world in every area of life will be willing to die for your beliefs. But you have to be willing to lose your job first. You must be like the Apostle Paul. You must be like John or you must be like Jesus that stands for this. And you might be saying, hey, Pastor Paul, don't you think this is a little harsh? We live in the United States. You're not going to lose your job. You're not going to lose your life. We're protected. Let me ask you a question. What if we do nothing? What if we disobey Jesus and simply hide in our church buildings? 
Well, we already have an example of that just under 100 years ago, don't we? In the early 1930s, Germany was a Christian nation. It had been the heart of where the Reformation had begun 400 years before that, now 500 years. But Christians turned a blind eye in the early 1930s to what was being beginning to take place in Germany. There were some warning signs that some, uh, something ominous was going to happen, but no one thought it would turn out like it did. In 1932 and 1933, as the Nazi Socialist Party began to take shape and take control and to lean on Christian church leaders to adopt their form of ideology, it was considered to be patriotic to begin flying a new flag of national unity. You know that flag is the swastika, don't you? It was considered loyal Now, to be fair, those churches that began to fly that flag, there was no thought that there would be 6 million dead Jews or 5 million dead non-Jews, many of those Christians. No one thought in 32 and 33 that Hitler would spark a worldwide war that would take 60 million lives. Their thought was, don't rock the boat. Those churches thought our job is to do church on Sunday and not engage the outside these walls. We just, we need to stay Christians. German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer that you hear me quote from from time to time who would later die at the command of Hitler hung by piano wire just a few days before the end of the war because he had tried to stop Hitler. Bonhoeffer who I've got to tell you probably inspired me to preach this today, often said that this about the resistance to Hitler, to the church, and the hatred of the Jews, and the imprisonment and killing. He said this, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. I think that's true. And certainly we don't have to be what Jesus, and certainly we have to be what Jesus called us to be, salt and light in an evil world. Again, not talking about Christian nationalism because that can be, well, as deadly as any socialist movement. To stand for biblical truth. In the early 1930s, the vast majority of churches and Christians supported the Nazi Socialist Party. Do you know that? But a few Christians, a few churches stood against the Nazis. A few pastors stood up for what is right and they paid the price with their lives. They were put in concentration camps and put to death. Hundreds of thousands of Christians died in Germany trying to protect the Jew, their Jewish friends, but they did it too late. The believing churches were shut down and had to go underground if they stayed open. But what would have happened if those Christians in Germany in the early 30s started standing up for what is right and calling out what is wrong in that early 1930s? The Nazis would maybe have never come to power. Now hear me, and hear me clearly. If we don't stand up for what is right and live out our faith in the world, the same thing may await us in just a few years. It could come from the the bad Christian nationalists, truly. But more than likely, I see it coming from the other side. Socialism, 
critical gender theorist, critical lesbian theorist, critical gay theorist, critical race theorist, organizations like Black Lives Matter. And the progressive churches are among the very worst in our society. Already you're beginning to see rainbow flags being flown by these churches outside their doors and placed on their websites. Those churches are clearly virtue signaling, just like those churches in Germany in the early 30s flying the swastika. Already, if you don't fly those flags or jump on the bandwagon with them saying there is no such thing as right and wrong, there's no such thing as morals, there's no such thing as sin, you are labeled as a hater. And they're saying prosecute those people. We don't make a big deal out of it here. We don't, but we've seen some significant vandalism here at our church building over the last few years. Some hateful things written against Christianity in our church. I'm convinced it's because we stand on the Bible and truth. I've laid out a lot on you that next time after Christmas, we'll move on to one of the most important iconic pictures of Jesus in the New Testament as we dive further into Jesus. But I wanted to share with you what was on my heart, that we have to live for Jesus in this world, and it may be different than what you think it is. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We come to you as Christians and we are thankful for the freedom that you've given us. God, I pray that you help us to be bold in our faith. To live in the spheres of influence where we live. To shine the light in the dark place. That you would save people through that. God, I pray that you help us to be salt in the world where we live. That you would stop the decay of this world through us loving this world and engaging it like Jesus. God, I pray that you would help the real church, your church, Jesus, become all that you want it to be. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.